Nasso. So this morning we turn to the second of the four measurables. And as, as I've mentioned before, I think there's a very meaningful sequence uh, in terms of the order of the four measurables, starting with loving kindness, then proceeding to compassion, and then in a while we will get to empathetic joy. But it's quite clear as we cultivate loving kindness, whether for ourselves or for others, that it, it is visionary. It must be visionary. Because we're aspiring for something that hasn't yet occurred. Right? If it had occurred already, then it would be empathetic joy, happy with what's already taking place. But this cultivation of loving kindness requires imagination. You know? And it requires, it requires intelligence. Because it's not enough simply to wish, may, may we all find happiness in the causes of happiness. I mean, that is, that is the standard articulation of loving-kindness, or boundless loving-kindness, as we find it in Buddhism. But for that to be meaningful, and for that to be effective, we need to have a mature vision of what happiness is, that it's not simply hedonic, uh, but also, even more deeply, what are the actual causes of happiness. So if you wish for it, you have to know what you're wishing for, have some idea. Is it more money? Is it more wealth? Good looks? Greater virtue? Wisdom, compassion, what is it? And so this is where this cognitive intelligence uh, comes in, being wise in our desires, not simply wishing, may everybody be happy. That's fine, but it's kind of vacuous. I mean, it has hardly any content at all. What do you mean by happy, and how do you mean to go about it, and what are the causes for that to occur? Right. So that's where the, the intelligence comes in, wisdom comes in, where there has to be a fusion of skillful means and wisdom. But again, coming back to the central point here, the initial point, and that is it's visionary. We imagine and we aspire for a degree of well-being, hedonic and eudaimonic, uh, that has not yet been realized, whether by ourselves or by others. And so it's uplifting. This is why very often metta bhavana is taught all by itself in the Vipassana tradition, very, very commonly. If they teach any of the four measurables, it's almost certainly going to be metta, and I know quite a number of Vipassana meditators who don't, don't actually know there are three more. You know? And this is, not, this is not a criticism. It's just, if you're going, as I mentioned before, if you're going to choose only one, this would be a really good candidate. Um, but there, is, there are more than one. And so as we, but of course people like doing it as well. Whether you're religious, non-religious, Buddhist, non-Buddhist, it feels nice, it feels good to cultivate loving-kindness for oneself, for others. And people like to do, do what feels good. So that's all very understandable. You can also lift us up into kind of this realm of possibility where it's possible, almost like you know, sitting into a little carriage or a little basket under a hot, hot air balloon, and this kind of drifting off into, wouldn't it be nice if everybody were happy? Wouldn't it be nice if... And we can start singing and maybe writing poetry about, wouldn't it be nice if everybody lived in harmony and... And it was spring all the time, and, and, and I were 30 years younger, <laughs> which actually I don't want to at all. Um, and so it can, be, it can bring us out of actually out of touch as we drift off into, with a happy smile, into the realm of possibility. We can actually lift off from the realm of actuality. And of course that's going to be imbalanced. So we come back and the, we balance the loving-kindness with compassion. Because compassion is, first of all, attending to the, the realm of the actual, what's actually taking place. 
And then we see the meaning of the word samsara. The more deeply we look, then we see this really is called an ocean of suffering. You know, with islands of happiness, to be sure. But what is, I think it's something like half the world's population is living in poverty. Isn't that right? Pretty close. Yeah? And 65 people own as much as the poor 3.5 billion. That just brings anguish. <laughs> really just anguish. Why would anybody accumulate that amount of money? Why? 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 It's, it's, it's only Dalai Lama said that seems like criminal. So in any case, we come back, and it's very sobering. Sobering to the point of even being overwhelming. And so we come back landing with a heavy thud in the realm of actuality. And here's a world of suffering. And so then, then, then this brings forth, or invites, compassion, the second of the four immeasurables. And as I've said before, so very briefly, compassion in the Buddhist understanding is not an emotion. It's not simply sympathy or empathy, but is rather an aspiration. So once again, it's not a, an emotional, among the four elements of cognitive, attentional, cognitive, emotional, it's not emotional. It brings with it an emotion. When one feels very strong compassion, certainly there's an emotion involved. But it itself is not an emotion. It itself is cognitive. It's an aspiration. Right? And that's not so clear in English. Uh, very often, simply being sympathetic and being compassionate are equated. Whereas there's an outstanding neuroscientist, uh, Tanya Zinger, uh, whose father is very eminent, and now she's really rising to eminence herself as the director of the Max Planck Institute for Neuroscience in Leipzig, I believe. And she, is, she has found that, in fact, neurocorrelates, that different parts of the brain are activated. Uh, when you're experiencing empathy or sympathy, which is, a, which is an emotion, in contrast to compassion, which is a desire, an aspiration, the desire, aspiration, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So these two are related, but they're clearly not equivalent in experience, and then, not surprisingly, different parts of the brain are also activated when it's simply sympathy or empathy, and when you're actually aroused in an aspiration. An aspiration has to have a vision. Whether you would like an, an ice cream cone, whether you'd like to achieve enlightenment, whether you'd like to get married, it has to have some vision of what could be, right? Uh, as in the case of loving kindness. So compassion here is articulated as the aspiration. May we find freedom from suffering and its causes. And once again, the, the, what is being expressed here is something primordial, primal, hard grade. It's right there in our fundamental impulse of caring. And I think we could get by, we could have days with no happiness and get by and say, well, that was kind of a boring day, it wasn't great, it was kind of like got through it. If we can't have happiness, well, we get by. Suffering, on the other hand, that we just always want to be free of, right? It's more intense. So this is one reason I understand why the news in the, in the newspapers is almost all bad. There's plenty of good news. It doesn't sell as well. I mean, that's just the, the fact of it. They don't sell as many newspapers, magazines, so forth, if they focus on good news. Because people want to know, first of all, what's threatening to them. And then if that's kind of under control, then, okay, give us some good news too. It's very understandable. Survival. You survive and procreate by surviving, not by having happy days and then getting killed. And so this is a constant, and that is we just never want to suffer in the body or the mind. And then we can ask a very simple question. We've, from the time we were born, let alone past lives, every single moment 
of every waking hour, and including in the dreams, in every single moment, we want to be free of suffering. Always want to be free of suffering. If possible, both physical and mental. If it can only be free, uh, only be one of the two, we'd rather be free of mental suffering. But physical suffering can be really ca- catch your attention. We all know that. So we'd like to be free of both. And so then we can ask, okay, how's your track record? This is something you've always wanted. On, on some occasions, you wanted a car, you wanted a girlfriend, you wanted a house, you wanted a job, you wanted this, you wanted to go on vacation. Or th- those desires come up all over the place. Those are the myriad appearances, right? And they shift all over the place. The kind of desires you have now are very different than the kind of desires you had 30 years ago. But what is the constant is, in every waking moment, in every dreaming moment, you always want to be free of suffering. That's a constant. That's kind of going right down to the root of caring. So then you can check, check, check your track record. How you, how you doing? Because we're very intelligent. You know, this massive frontal cortex we have, our powers of imagination, of memory, of language, being able to learn from other people's mistakes and so forth, learning from our own mistakes. If we were simply rational beings, if, this were, if we were kind of simply designing humanity or trying to you know, understand this without actually looking at empirical facts, it would be very easy to assume that an individual over the course of life would just get freer and freer of suffering until by the time you're getting into old age and so forth, you're pretty much okay. You know, live longer and you just you know, live beyond 70 to 80 or 90 and you just have less and less suffering because you're just learning more and more about you know, trial and error, like Thomas Edison, what worked, what didn't work. And so by the time you get 90, you just be so serene and peaceful, you know, let alone happy too. And so the fact that that's generally not the case <clears throat> let alone from lifetime to lifetime. If we learned from lifetime to lifetime, then of course every lifetime we'd be better. It's kind of like the New Age notion uh, of re- reincarnation. Is every every life has some lessons to be learned. You know, it's like school, and you go from this and you learn some lessons, and then you go on to the next class and you learn some more lessons. And in every way, and every day, and every lifetime, I'm just getting better and better, and better. I would love that to be true, and there's no evidence for it at all. It's a happy thought. So is Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. But it doesn't actually turn out to be true at all. And it's not even true in the course of a lifetime. Some people, indeed, do become freer and freer of some suffering, find greater and greater happiness. Again, Lo Sangyatso, the yogi <coughs> that I mentioned, who was the, the farmer, the, mil- the, the soldier, <coughs> and then eventually turned himself totally to Dharma. When I was translating for him in the mid-80s, uh, he commented when, when asked by Bob Thurman, about what was it like to be him. And he said, well, I'm abiding constantly, constantly, both during meditation and post-meditation, I'm abiding constantly in a a state of inexpressible bliss. He said that. His holiness told him before he came that he had to be very candid if Westerners asked him what was going on. And not just say, oh, I'm some Buddhist monk, I have no realization, (laughs) I I only aspire for Buddhism. His holiness would do that, but he he told this monk, because he was going to Harvard to have them examine him. Uh, you know, and if Herbert Benson had said, "Well, what's it like to be?" and he said, "Oh, I have no realization." He said, "What did you come here for?" Why the Dalai Lama sent you here? If you're just an early schmuck, schmuck, then you don't even have a PhD. And so there are people like that. You know, it's not alone. This still happens. That and he started really a serious Dharma practice when he was 48. Not too, not too late. Not too late, at least for some of you. <laughs> Not too late. And that was after just being a farmer and a military man. 
soldier. So coming back, clearly if this cultivation, this arousal of compassion is to be effective, which is the whole point, why have an aspiration that's never fulfilled, it has to be imbued with, with wisdom. Yeah. To envision what would freedom from suffering would be like, well, it's pretty much an absence of what we're familiar with, so that would be nice. That's not too hard. But then what are the actual causes? What are the actual causes? And when it comes to the physical, the hedonic, I pretty much leave that to people who are expert at it. Doctors, nurses, um, investment counselors, dentists, and so forth. Realtors help you find a good home. So that's taken care of. There's, there's a lot of money to be made in helping people find hedonic well-being and help them alleviate their stimulus-driven suffering. That's good. It's wonderful. But when it comes to the alleviation of what I call genuine unhappiness, where there's an unhappiness, there's dukkha that is not stimulus-driven. It's not just an episode or a spike, something rotten happened, and, I'm, and therefore I'm unhappy. No. So then try to avoid rotten things happening to you. right? But this genuine unhappiness that is kind of like this underlying current of dissatisfaction, of restlessness, feeling ill at ease, anxious, for very good reason. You're in samsara. Be anxious. You know, lots of bad things happen here to free ourselves, especially from this lingering, this underlying current of dukkha, but also the myriad manifestations of it, of disappointment, of grief, of anguish, and so forth. To be free of suffering and its causes, we have to identify the causes. We have to be smart. We have to be observant. And it happens so, so often, even among people otherwise intelligent. They find themselves really unhappy. And then they find someone to blame. They find someone else to blame. Poor Adolf, who was a moderately gifted artist. Not bad. I saw some of his art. He wasn't bad. Pretty kind of good. He, he, didn't, he, didn't, he, he failed as an artist. Didn't make it. So he found something else. And the suffering of the German people, and there was a lot of suffering, a lot of it was unjust. He drew on that, and then found individuals, groups, and so forth to blame. And a lot of people agreed with him, and then 20 million people died. No, more than that, actually, but it was a lot. We do that individually, We do that collectively, and we just perpetuate samsara. We look at our own unhappiness and we find someone else to blame. Somebody else, some place, some, something outside of ourselves. It's cognitive unintelligence, cognitive foolishness. So the Buddha's insight here, I think it was quite revolutionary, Is, it's most obvious with mental suffering, but it's actually not confined to that, but most obviously mental. If we really would like to be free of mental suffering, and that includes depression, anxiety, and the whole range of dukkha, then he pointed to three internal elements, and that is, of course, three poisons. Craving, hostility, delusion. And he said this, if you trace your, if you really observe carefully, and this is where it keeps on coming radically empirical, if you observe carefully, your mental suffering at any time, see whether or not is this true. It's not dogma. 
This is, this is empirically investigatable. Whenever you experience some unhappiness, dukkha, depression, anxiety, and so forth and so on, can you see the underlying cause, the primary cause, the indispensable cause, in either delusion, where you simply, it's a misapprehension of reality. You got it wrong. For example, reification of self, reification of others, but also on a very practical level, grasping onto that which is by nature impermanence, fleeting, not abiding, subject to cessation, and grasping onto that as a refuge, as something stable, enduring, something you can count on, like a relationship. It comes up in, in popular songs all the time. Eternal love, eternal love, my soulmate, eternal love, you know, all that business. And we, and we fall into it generation after generation, like as if nobody's ever fallen in love before. And nobody's ever reified that relationship and think it will be enduring and absolutely forever. You know? Of course, it never is. And so it's just amazing that, that Einstein said the human capacity for delusion seems to be infinite. And it really does. That somehow we fail to understand and we keep on doing the same thing over and over again. So, grasping to the impermanent, that which by nature definitely going to terminate and is always in the process of change, and think somehow it's going to be stable and enduring. I mean, to call that delusion is simply an accurate statement. And then seeing how our mental suffering stems in many cases from craving, from attachment, viewing someone, something, or something abstract like reputation and so forth as a, self of, as a source of happiness, a true source of happiness, and then grasping onto that, clinging to that, craving that, having attachment for that if we acquire it. And then, lo and behold, it doesn't turn out well. Surprise, you know? And then, of course, hostility, aggression, hatred, anger. And, of course, that feels rotten from the very beginning. So just see, there it is. But he's saying that's it, that... Other people, outside situations, may or may not give rise to mental suffering. Yang Tanabache, how many people could do this, live in a concentration camp for 18 years, and say, I was happier in concentration camp than most people are outside? And he just used that for an 18-year retreat. There was another one, was it Chuji Rinpoche, who stayed in somebody's basement for like 18 years. Was it Chuji? Chudin, Chudin Rinpoche, yeah. Something like that. I mean, my precise you know, details here may be Chudin Rinpoche, Gulupa Lama. You know, during the hell years, the Cultural Revolution, then he just stayed in somebody's basement and pretended to be a crazy man. You know, because if, if he saw he was a Tuku, then they would have killed him or imprisoned him. So he pretended to be a crazy man, like, you know, mentally imbalanced or, you know, mentally impaired. He lived in a basement for 18 years, pretending whenever any Chinese came by, you know, he's kind of like the simpleton, that's why they kept him in the basement. And he turned that into an 18-year retreat. Came, came out in a magnificent human being, you know. Or Banlan Gyatso, I translated for him about 20 years ago. 30 years in concentration camp. It was, he did not enjoy it. He was a simple monk, an ordinary monk. It was horrendously awful. He was starved, he was tortured, he was worked almost to death and so forth. Finally released. So that was, he suffered. He suffered mentally a lot. He wanted to commit suicide, but he wouldn't because he was a monk. But when he was released, when I was with him in the mid-90s, twice I translated for him, we had long conversations, 
He said, and I saw no reason to dis- disbelieve what he said, I feel no hatred, no, ha- no resentment. No hatred, no resentment towards those who incarcerated me. And of course, he didn't do anything at all. None. And he would speak passionately. I would, I would be by his side translating. Passionately for human rights for Tibetan people. But never a note of anger, of resentment, of hostility towards the Chinese communists. Not a, not a note of that. Just, may we be free, may we be free. So if there's ever, ever a man who, who sh- kind of should have been suffering from intense post-traumatic stress disorder, intense hatred, intense depression, and so forth, he would be a really good candidate. And yet he was robust, he was lively, he was warm, vigorous, passionate. But passionate simply for freedom. You know? And then I know a woman who was like living in Deva realm. She was attractive, she had a marvelous husband, happy family, lots of wealth, oodles of wealth, and family had excellent reputation. Her husband died, and she just fell into suicidal depression. As if her husband wasn't supposed to die, or that was unexpected. He was an elderly man. But when he died, she just wanted to commit suicide. So everything for her, and she had a supportive family, loving the family. And it was really a very wholesome situation. Her, man, her husband was a very, very good man. I knew him. But she was suicidally depressed because her husband died. And a man who was in a concentration camp for 30 years wasn't depressed. So all of this just shout at us, reality screaming at us, that what really makes us unhappy is not your plush mansion on a hillside you know, overlooking the Pacific. And what really makes you miserable is not being in a concentration camp. So may we be free, may we be free. So I'd like to wrap this up, but to bring wisdom to this is imperative. Otherwise, just a sentiment or an empty, vacuous, going-nowhere desire. If we are wishing, may we be free of suffering, and we don't really have a clue. What causes it? What causes it? Why is there so much discord in the Middle East? Is it just because those fanatic Muslims are bad people? That would be easy. You know, bad people, good people. We suffer because of bad people. There's a good moronic response to it, you know, but it never, of course, cuts to the source. And so this is where wisdom really comes in. And so, in the Buddhist teaching, compassion is always directed outwards. I've never seen any reference to self-directed compassion. Never seen it. It just don't, doesn't come up. You know, feel compassion for yourself. Because they would say, you already want to be free of suffering. What are we even talking about? You don't need to cultivate that. You know, except they didn't see us coming. <laughs> or we can be so harsh with ourselves, you know. Literally, when I was, I, I've told this story many times, I'm running on, I'm afraid. But when I was a monk in the monastery back in, in India in the early 70s, and our teacher Genlosen Gatsu, the abbot, was saying, you know, we, we always find fault and others' fault in us, but we think we're good. We're good. The other side is bad, but we're good. And I went to him afterwards and said, Genlosen, actually, I do a lot of fault-finding on myself, too. I don't think I'm that good. I do a lot of, you know, quite harsh and critical of myself. And he looked at me with this incredibly sweet face. I mean, just so, it was like a mother. He looked at me with this incredibly sweet face and said, No, you don't. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. That any of it, any would be so, so crazy is to be harsh and unkind to yourself and harshly critical and judgmental. He didn't even know what that could mean. He says, no, you, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, it was. 
<laughs> so I think here we have to do a remedial course. And it's not just Westerners. Right? It's now global. Let's start this session compassion for ourselves. It's much better than self-recrimination, self-hostility, low self-esteem, all of that. And attending to the person, the person that we are who always wishes to be free of suffering, has the capacity to be free of suffering. So two points to make really quickly, and then we'll jump in. We go back to this brilliant analysis by Buddhaghosa. It's in his Vasudhimagya, or Path of Purification. You can find it eminently worth reading. And so in terms of the immediate cause, okay, we, you remember it for loving-kindness. You remember that lovable quality, seeing it. Here, the immediate cause, that which catalyzes or triggers this aspiration of compassion, and of course he's referring to compassion towards other people, is seeing others in a situation where they're, su- they're helpless, they're suffering, and they're helpless. They're not in a position to relieve themselves from suffering. If they were, you just kind of stand by and applaud, oh good, the person fell into the river, but as a strong swimmer is swimming right to the side, Bravo, good, you're going to get no compassion there. Like, you know, carry on, jolly good, you know. But if a person is, you know, dropped into the river like a baby and doesn't know how to swim, and you're a strong swimmer, then just about everybody, right, even if it's quite cold, many people would jump into the river, right? That's that impulse of carrying again. But that highlights something, and I'm going to highlight it just briefly, enormously important though. And that is. If you saw the baby just about to go over, like in two seconds, it's going over a waterfall, like the Niagara Falls, and you see that, well, you'd just be very sad. But how would you authentically have any aspiration? The baby's right on the edge, right? It's going to go drop, what, 200 feet or whatever. And there's just no question it's going to die. And it's too, way too late. You just notice it now. What would you feel? Sad. But may you be free, may you be free? Come on, <laughs> who would do that? It's not going to happen. The baby's going to die, and it's really sad. But may you not fall. May you hover in the air when you go over the... Well, nobody's going to be wishing for that. Because you know it's not going to happen. So, you know, we're not idiots here. And so there needs to be another element there. On the one hand, we see someone, or all sentient beings, or in this case, we refer to ourselves as well. We see we're suffering, we see we're not. We don't have the capacity to free ourselves from the suffering. But a crucial element, and that is we must, see, must, we must see the possibility that freedom is possible. At least alleviation. At least alleviation of suffering is possible. And if we're aspiring, may you be free of suffering and its causes, there must be a vision that freedom from suffering and its causes is actually possible. If it's not, we're not going to... That airplane is not going to fly. It's too heavily burdened with reality. Is not going to get off the ground, right? We're not going to aspire for something that deep down we think that's never going to happen. Impossible. There has to be that vision of possibility. And we aspire for it. But this means we have to know what the causes of suffering are. If we don't have a clue, then we don't have a clue whether freedom is possible. Right? So those two elements, and that is seeing that the person that we're attending to is suffering not capable of freeing him or herself all by themselves. But there is a possibility. They could be freed. They could be freed. And then may it be so. So we direct this inwardly. 
and we can see for ourselves how successful we've been thus far in taking refuge in our own intelligence, our own creativity, our memory, and so forth, analytical abilities, and see for ourselves, you know, how's it been going? From year to year, decade to decade. Happier and happier? Less and less, and less prone to suffering? If the, taking refuge in our own intelligence really worked, then we'd find this very widespread. We'd find just human beings, atheists, materialists, Muslims, Christians, Jews, and so forth. We just find, as people get old, just a generalization of human race, when people get older, they just suffer less. And they're happier. On occasion, that's true. As a generalization, I think it's obviously not true. Let alone from lifetime to lifetime. There we're beyond the scope of what we can directly observe. And so in this regard, as we cultivate compassion for ourselves, and that would be the meditation for this morning, as we arouse the aspiration, may I be free of suffering and its causes. I mean free, not may just I feel a little bit better. But may I be free. It just occurred to me this morning that just naturally evokes taking a refuge. If there's any chance of being successful. How, with your deluded mind, can you wish to be free of delusion when you're taking refuge in the deluded mind to get you free of delusion? That's going to be a different, difficult one. Right? Difficult. So for some time then, to take refuge in someone outside of your matrix of delusion, craving and hostility, who's free of all of those, who's found the path, come to the culmination of the path, has gotten a clean bill of health, freedom from all mental afflictions, and can report on what it's like and how to get there. Well, with analogies, ab- analogies abound. That's the person you rely upon. Right? And right there is the fundamental rationale for taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So that, I think, is part of compassion. For those who are drawn to this path, taking refuge is really part of compassion toward oneself. Because there's some possibility. There's, there's some hope. There has to be hope, right? And if you look to the Buddha himself and then the great adepts in the multiple tradition, Theravada, Chan, Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddha, Mongolian, and so forth, we see there's enormous grounds for hope. That in fact, the Buddha was not just all by himself as the only one, but myriad of his own disciples, his personal disciples, that gained such freedom. And then myriad disciples over the last 2,500 years have found such freedom in, in the multiple, how to say, ways that the Buddhism has been assimilated in different cultures, and now is being assimilated into modernity. So that would be part of compassion. And then, final point, again, we don't even call this self-directed compassion, but we have another word for it. And it's called renunciation. Renunciation is not simply being fed up with samsara, fed up with delusion, fed up with suffering. Renunciation is being fed up, disillusioned with the single-minded fixation on hedonic pleasure, think that's going to fix, I can, I can massage reality into shape and it's going to come out really well, despite aging, sickness, and death. One grows out of that delusional fantasy and becomes completely dis- disillusioned with finding freedom from suffering by finding the fir- perfect spouse, the perfect job, the perfect look, the perfect health, the perfect location, and so forth and so on, the perfect health plan and so forth, and say, oh, that just, that's just stupid. It's just stupid. You know? There are people who have marvelous spouses. I know some. Marvelous spouses, like, boy, you couldn't ask for better than that, and they're miserable. A spouse can't make them 
happy spouse can't free them from suffering. Even if it's an Arya Bodhisattva spouse. Really. And I don't think they're very common. <laughs> Maybe more common than I know. You know, my, my, my vision is all dulled by my own delusion. But even if you had an Arya Bodhisattva spouse, that's no guarantee you're going to be happy. You're so goody-goody. Can't, can't stand you goody-goody people. You're always so nice. You make, you make me feel guilty. <laughs> you give me a sense of low self-esteem. I'll never be as good as you. Why don't you just take a hike? I can't stand being around you anymore. You just make me feel rot- rotten because I compare my behavior to yours and I always come out lower. <laughs> Write a book on the disadvantages of having a saint for his followers. <laughs> so, it's called renunciation. And renunciation is two-pronged. It's disillusion with samsara. Disillusion with just carrying on in this field of mental afflictions and thinking it's somehow going to turn out well. Total, radical, complete disillusionment. Basta is the word of renunciation. But that's not enough. That's enough to commit suicide if you thought that would work. But it's not enough to set you out on a path to liberation. There has to be a vision. There has to be a vision of freedom. It has to seem possible that the whole of reality is not just samsara. There's also nirvana. There's not only mental affliction, there's freedom. There are not only obscurations, there's the brightly shining mind that is adventitiously covered by these defilements. We call that renunciation. We also call that just being smart. We call that cognitive intelligence. So one can say this practice we're about to begin is simply an exercise in intelligence, self-directed compassion as a basis for developing compassion for everyone else. Okay, find a comfortable position. As an expression of compassion for yourself, temporarily, withdraw your attention from the field of the eight mundane concerns, all your worldly affairs. Draw your awareness inwards, gently and kindly. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Come to a place of peace, of serenity, of stillness.
And from this perspective, as if viewing your own being, your own personhood, from the perspective of this brightly shining mind, this transpersonal perspective, a subtler basis of designation, if you like, for I am. View your life, view your history, your personal history. Fully aware of your constant desire to be free of suffering and its causes. Never a moment do you deviate from that aspiration. But take note over the years and decades of your life thus far, again, let alone past lives, which you can't remember. How much suffering have you endured? And this is a real question, not a rhetorical one. How successful have you been thus far? in freeing yourself from suffering and its causes. Such that given the same circumstances, adversity, felicity, adversity, you suffer less in response to adversity. How capable do you feel on your own that you're intelligent enough to find your way to freedom? Without looking to those who successively have gone before you. So as if you'd found a wish-fulfilling jewel that can grant every wish. If you have the trust, the confidence, well-informed, in the freedom of the Buddha, in the efficacy of the medicine of the Dharma, and the wise benevolence of the Sangha, your spiritual friends, those who have gained profound realization, realized nirvana. And out of compassion for yourself, the sincere wish, may I be free of suffering, forever completely free of suffering and its causes. I entrust myself to those who have fully awakened. To the Dharma they've revealed. And those who have followed that Dharma and found their own freedom. 
by setting out on that same path of ethics, samadhi, wisdom. May I too be free of suffering, forever free, however long it may take, one lifetime or many. May I too be free of suffering and its causes. Like an addict, whether for alcohol or drugs or other objects of addiction, who finally comes to the point that it's unbearable, an absolute shift must take place. Seeing with total clarity the catastrophic effects of continuing to act upon that addiction, Dom Durma, the great disciple of Atisha, said, give up all attachment to this life. Basta. Hopeless. Never a chance of freedom. Not there. Give up all attachment to this life and the other side. Let your mind become Dharma. Dwell in Dharma. Be Dharma. Take refuge in Dharma at all times. And by so doing, may I be free of suffering and its causes, completely and forever. For this aspiration to be realized, there must be a path. It's not just a technique or some good advice or a practice here or there. There must be the fourth noble truth. There must be a path. What's the strategy? So as you envision your own freedom, as you venture into the realm of possibility, envision it, envision it clearly. own complete freedom, then as you arouse this aspiration for such freedom, arouse also your understanding of the path in which you feel trust, confidence, commitment, dedication, that you could devote this and all future lifetimes to. What comes to mind? How does the path come to mind? Have you encountered it? Do you see the way from here to there? 
breath by breath, with, with working memory, holding in mind the vision of freedom and holding in mind the path to such freedom, the means by which you may actually be free, not only of suffering, but the causes of suffering, and be free whatever your circumstances, whatever happens to you, wherever you may be, always free, holding this in mind, freedom and the path to freedom. When you see it's possible, then breath by breath arouse the aspiration, may it be so. May I be truly free of suffering and its causes. Breath by breath, again symbolically imagine the very epitome of your own freedom, your own Buddha nature, your pristine awareness, primordially pure and free, the wellspring of all genuine happiness. Imagine this once again as an orb of light at your heart. And breath by breath, with each inhalation, imagine the darkness of all that obscures your mind. All mental afflictions, all obscurations, all impediments. Symbolically, in the form of darkness, imagine siphoning these off, drawing them in as if with a gravitational field, drawing in this darkness that shrouds your mind, shrouds this brightly shining mind. Dissolve that darkness into the light at your heart and let it be extinguished there without trace. Breath by breath, banish the darkness. And let your mind become Dharma. the brightly shiny mind of Dharma.
And breath by breath, imagine becoming free. And here and now, imagine being free. Drawing the wisdom. The wisdom that Benjamin Butcher shared with us yesterday. Let the basis of designation of yourself be not your ordinary body, your ordinary mind, or even your substrate consciousness. Let it be that very subtle energy mind. Pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. And the flow of energy, the energy of primordial consciousness, with this as a basis of designation. Here and now, regard yourself, designate yourself as already free. Because there is a perspective from which that is true right now.
and release all, <clears throat> release all imagining, all aspirations and objects of the mind and simply rest your awareness it's on, in its own place, knowing itself. So, so as always, we come back to the theme of path. If there's a path, compassion is possible. So, enjoy your day.